Hey, my name is Alex Davis, and this is Sub GW, where we interview thought leaders, faculty, fellow students, alumni, and working professionals to talk about sustainable urban planning topics, themes, issues, and news, not just in the DMV area, but across the country and around the world. The episodes you're about to hear capture the unique perspectives of Black planners and those that are planner adjacent, working in the fields of community engagement and climate science. For Black History Month, we want to give voice to those experiences, highlighting how they're impacting their field to encourage students in the program and provide insight into how they work with communities of color. Coming up, we have grad student Ariel Lofton, who's interviewing Desiree Powell, an urban planner from Arlington, Texas, dedicated to building Black spaces for Black communities. So pull up a chair, sit back, and enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Ariel Lofton, and we are here with Desiree Powell today. Hi, Desiree. How are you? Hey, what's up? How are you? Great. Thank you for joining us. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. My name is Desiree, Desiree Powell. Um, mostly go by D. Um, I'm an urban planner and urban designer, and I guess a place creator in Mesa, Texas. And I'm also the creator and founder of DRBTS, Do um, Right by the Streets. Um, urban planning, urban design group. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So um, one of the first questions I want to ask you is just, you know, talking about the pathways to your early career as a young Black professional planner, just talk about your early development in planning and um, just your experience so far. Um, so I graduated with my master's uh, from the University of Texas at Arlington in a community, nope, city and regional planning in 2018. Um, and then shortly after, I got my first planning job in July of 2018 um, in a mid-sized city uh, in Texas. And I'm not going to lie, it was it was a hard transition. It was feeling like I didn't learn a lot in school, but also feeling like uh, I learned a lot that wasn't as easily transferable to my new job um, mm-hmm. so I stumbled for the first couple of months trying to figure out um, how to save the world how to do all the urban planning things that we thought we were going to do um, getting out of school and like kind of being jolted back into reality as far as like public sector planning and all the hurdles and red tape that exists with that so it was definitely some stumbling blocks when I first came out of school just because you know everybody didn't have that same kind of like passion that I did and everybody didn't see it from the same lens. Um, so once I got, <laughs> once I got the, got the hang of that and kind of had a, you know, I guess I come into Jesus moment with myself as far as what's my own why. Um, I slowly kind of like started to carve out a lane as far as like urban design. Uh, my program didn't have a lot of classes about it um, unless you were in the architecture or landscape architecture uh, pathway. Um, so I just kind of dove, like, dove into that as far as places and spaces and what that looks like in communities of color, particularly Black communities. Um, and that's how I ended up in the, the market, community market, farmer's market, space creation arena. Um, and it allowed me to be out of my desk. It allowed me to be out and about. Um, and it pushed my own personal <laughs> uh, comfort zone as far as like talking to people and interacting with them. So 
that pretty much laid the foundation for now as far as still in the public sector in a somewhat similarly sized city in a different part of Texas, but now being able to navigate like the red tape and the, the public sector and the challenges, having this this wide factor has made made that process, made that pathway a lot, a lot easier for sure. Right. That's really interesting. I'm glad that, you know, your story is really, you know, it speaks to a lot of what people are experiencing right now, whether you're whatever, regardless of what you're studying, sometimes um, your program might not be as applicable as, you know, actually being in the field and actually doing the work and being upfront and talking to people. So thank you for sharing that experience. Most definitely. Um, also, I wanted to ask you, what are some of your personal motivations that made you want to pursue urban planning in the first place? Um, I probably like everybody else, I stumbled upon it. I was always uh, interested and kind of fascinated about why certain places look so different than others. Uh, my family is from a rural part of Louisiana that looks completely different. Some parts places still have dirt road, gravel road. So coming back home to Texas, it was like night and day. And I've always been fascinated about why some cities function, why some areas function the way they do. Um, and for me, initially, it was the motivation of Parks and Rec. That's where I started. And I thought I was going to be in the Parks and Rec arena as a planner. And the way that community centers play this role in just like the development of I guess what they call the urban youth, black and brown kids is like this, this, this safe space away from their house if they had one. Um, so that was my biggest motivation um, getting into it was finding a way to utilize all of these things that we learned, but like making them very, very simple and very applicable for like the communities that are just used to not having it. So uh, I guess there's just like early fascination with why some people, why some areas have it and others don't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, and also just from being a planner so far, um, what type of questions should planners ask communities to really understand their needs um, based off of like, certain you know, um, programs and events that you've put on um, so far? Um, how is that apl- applicable to like what you've done? Uh a lot of listening, honestly, like I've, I've probably done, I'm not a big talker anyway, so I do a lot of listening and a lot of, a lot of observing, but early on, I picked up that people don't want to be asked the same questions of what they want to see. Um, because nine times out of 10, we can't deliver the most grandiose ideas or sometimes the most small to mid scale ideas is asking those questions that are sometimes not even planning related, just like do they have kids? What is their family life like? What, like, how do they exist in this community? What in this community makes life easier for them? What makes life more challenging? Whether that's no public transit or transit that runs on this crazy schedule that, you know, doesn't really line up with them or uh, others that they know that may not have uh, a car or park space, recreation centers, that kind of thing. So it was really meeting them where they are. I know people say that a lot, but like really coming in with you got to let them hammer you with all of their questions and sometimes ridicule, but um, being prepared to ask the questions that go a little deeper beyond the surface of what do you want to see here or how would you vision your community kind of thing. Right. And a lot of it is about like 
having that trust, building that trust there too, because sure. the history of planning, especially in black and brown communities, there has been a lot of things that's happened in the past where there is just a mistrust and a disconnection from local Definitely. government and people who are actually trying to help. So that's super important. And now you are in Port Arthur, Texas, correct? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like projects that you're currently working on or the community that you're um, serving right now? Um, so it is about an hour outside of Houston. So fairly mid-sized, 53 plus or minus thousand people. Um, primarily, primary different demographics, Black, Hispanic, um, Asian American, and of course white. But it's a community that is... Uh, trying to find itself, trying to find its identity. Um, Hurricane Harvey hit this community pretty hard. So I'm trying to bounce back from that and what that looks like and retaining people, but also attracting people here as far as people are coming out of the big city and coming into quote unquote suburbia, but still wanting to have access to some of those big city amenities. Um, So really trying to get into you know, the trenches of what that looks like. What have we done from a planning perspective and a local government perspective? What have we done right? <laughs> and where have we fallen short? And how can we work with that? And kind of in the interim, um, event-wise, I haven't done anything personally. I've attended one a space activation in Houston um, that was put on by another group called Do the Things That Matter and CGS Bailey. That was really dope, rethinking what a lot could be um, as grandiose as you want it to be, but also something that directly benefits that community. Uh, but in the in the short term future, probably like March, because the weather in Texas is everywhere all the time. Um, it's doing a gathering in the sense of using uh, city-owned property as a place to gather people. Um, people gather for food <laughs> and people gather when there is a uh, a vibe in a sense. And that's something that we haven't had in a while. So being able to slowly inc- implement that a little bit at a time is, is the near future plan. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Can you also sure. talk about um, the past events that you put on, like yeah. Better Block, the MLK Food Park and things like that? For sure. Um, so the Better Block pro- pilot program was with or was with Better Blood. <laughs> it was a food park um, in South Dallas, which is a primarily uh, Black community. Um, and it's, it had, it's, it's seen better days as far as from a development standpoint. Um, it's definitely kind of coming back to that, but a community that's also on the brink of gentrification and they know it's coming. Um, so the park was an attempt to address food policy issues in the city of Dallas as far as who that helps, who it hurts, kind of like reading between the lines of if you're a black or brown food business, it's the immediate upfront costs are just astronomical compared to, not to say that it just says clearly black and white, but based on the cost, it leaves, it cuts some people out and it brings some people in. Um, And then also being able to highlight, you know, the businesses that are, that are, you know, born and bred in South Dallas um, that are black, black or brown, and shining light on it on a lot that, you know, corner lot, a lot of activity. Um, again, it was, they used to be like, I think a gas station had been a, like pretty much sitting there for a good two decades. Um, so to show that aspect of community engagement, but not sitting in like a charrette style community center, sitting at like a town hall meeting, but 
that activation to bring people out, but also to showcase these businesses in a way that this is empowerment in a way that sometimes from a planning perspective, you don't do have to do a lot. You just have to curate the space and make sure all the, the you know, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and let the community organically do what it's going to do. Um, so that was pretty dope. It ran for like uh, almost a month, a month and a half. And from the feedback from the community, um, a big thing for me and a big thing of why I started my own thing was um, I saw a lot of placemaking projects that were temporary in nature. They're really cool. They're really dope. And then they go away. And the community like South Dallas and others, um, unfortunately, are still trying to figure out how to like maintain that type of project or that type of activation. And it's, it's asking a lot for a community to go in and do all this cool stuff. And then you say, hey, by the way, can you take it over and completely run it and maintain it? Um, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to just keep being a temporary, you know, I didn't want to be a temporary temporary face and then you disappear for eons on end. Um, so a big part of like DRBTS is going from temporary to permanent and holding a permanent place in that community for whatever the space may be. And this example, it's food trucks, food businesses, but also retail businesses, people that have just started, they started businesses out of the pandemic or um, artists, creatives, everything, um, just for the fact of all of these different entities make not only South Dallas, but other communities, particularly of color, um, it really is what, you know, derives as far as the economic development aspect of it. Um, so I took it on and we went into phase three. The last phase was in September. So we are planning on coming back this April or May, phase four. And then, you know, again, on the hunt to find permanency um, in a place that can People can come and go. It kind of acts as a co-working space, as a resource space, and a space that for the people that are entrepreneurs but aren't ready to leave the nine to five, they can still have their business and have it in a, like basically a low risk. Um, similarly, in Arlington, which is a suburb in Texas that I live in, that I'm from, um, we did something called the East Side Exchange, which was um, on the east side of Arlington, also. Um, primarily Hispanic, African-American, Vietnamese population, um, somewhat sliced off from the city as far as resources and um, access to those resources without having to get in a car. Um, there's no public transit in Arlington, so you have to use a car. Um, or they do have this thing called VIA now, which is kind of like ride sharing, but a little bit cheaper. Um, so the Eastside Exchange was... Um, the early attempt to utilize the park space of a brand new rec center they got that was built over there that houses the library, the recreation park, gym, and indoor pool, so aquatics. Um, and then the park space, because so many people in that community use the park, um, utilize it, whether it's for walking, biking, just with their kids, it's right next door, well, a couple of feet away from a, an elementary school. So trying to bringing that in to kind of hone all those things together. Kind of the same premise of bringing, bringing business and bringing food out. But for that one, it was a lot more about community um, because of those elements of the library and people seeing all the resources that the library offers, a lot of things that that community may not have. That's a community that um, when, it, when it came down to the pandemic and Wi-Fi and tablets, um, it's not... It's not um, uncommon that you may have may have had a household with maybe two or three kids sharing one computer. Um, now having the library, now people being able to see it, have access to it, 
um, it was just we kind of just worked off of each other. So that was the premise of that one. That one was more so community community driven as far as resources, um, what people can utilize from the rec center beyond just like going to the weight room and doing fitness classes. Um, so that one was pretty dope, too. That's honestly so cool. I'm like so interested <laughs> in what you're doing. That's kind of like what I love about the public sector. We have, you know, our ups and downs, but it's also just you're actually you can actually see the work that you're doing and how it's affect positively positively affecting people's lives and just the food the food trucks and you know the events that you've been helping put on is just amazing and I know it's really made a difference in the communities that you're working with thank you Uh, yeah all right my next question is um how do you manage emotions and expectations when combating um decades of uh, generally biased urban planning policies and from you know I'm from the south as well being in the south you can clearly see you know the legacy of you know redlining the legacy of like racist you know policies that have been in in place in the area so um, what has your experience been with that? Um, Early on it was like coming straight out of school and going into the workforce like I think we knew, but we didn't really like know, or at least I didn't like I knew, but you didn't see the full capacity of it until you got into those meetings that there were people that, you know, they, they pretty much went from city to city, particularly scouting out communities of color, particularly black um, and, you know, dropping stuff and having their way. That was the first time I think I really saw like the embeddedness of it and that it's still running very rampant. Um, Now, it's to me there's no more like the elephant in the room like we talk we there's there's no way to get around it like when I talk about it I'm putting it out there face fronting no matter who we're meeting with not in a disrespectful way but in a way of when you enter this community it's you know there's already barriers up they were already fighting you know to get them to just understand that not every single thing we do is bad based on what they've experienced from their from living here and seeing it and you know being around it um and living in a part of areas of every areas of our city that are literally a shell of what they used to be um that's already a hurdle for for me coming in as a public sector planning so when a developer comes in it's definitely like it's like pre-checking and let them know like this is this is where we at this is what you're proposing how it can exacerbate that so make it worse and make it even harder for them to trust us the little bit that that we have and it's moving forward from there it's not always a pleasant conversation it's not always it's hardly ever something that people want to hear and that's a that's black white or brown or whoever developer just for the fact of they don't hear yes we can do it any way that we want um you know it's about a bottom line thing for them as far as money and it's everything transactional but it's having those conversations and putting it out there. And I know we talked, a lot of people talked a lot about being at the table, which is cool, no doubt. But a lot of the times we're at the table and we're still not really getting to be a voice that is like impacting the conversation as far as being like shaking the table, saying those things that people don't necessarily want to hear or it makes them uncomfortable. Um, and that's saying, you know, well, this part, this particular part of town, primarily black doesn't have X, Y, and Z source resources. And if you're planning on coming here, you know, 
do you think what you're proposing is going to make it worse or make it better? And everybody has a great pitch, but it's definitely about like less sales pitch it more just being genuine. Everybody doesn't catch on to that, obviously. Um, but I think combating it for me, as much as I try to take my personal feelings out of it and my personal bias, it's, it's challenging. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I can be a thousand percent honest to say sometimes I don't. Sometimes I feel like as a black planner, you have to put your personal bias in it because if not, like they'll run you over. They'll, they'll try to, you know, sell you the best deal, you know, and putting your personal biases, biases in it. Even if you don't haven't grown up in that community, you still see it in these, you see it in their faces, you see it in their interactions, you see it when you drive by in their neighborhoods, you kind of, you have to, you know, at some point, take it personally business if that makes sense it's like it's it's work and you go home and you take it off but I think as a black planner you you sometimes you still take it home with you for the fact of they've gone and left but you still can ride around and see like the impact or soon to be impact or this is how this is what happened when they bought the last person's pitch and this is what it came out to be um so it's it's really you know, one day at a time, figuring out how to combat it and figuring out how to utilize, you know, policies in a way that for the first time ever has benefited uh, communities that have been, you know, been the end result of redlining versus policy, policy making. Uh, it's, it's an everyday battle for me mentally, just for the fact of, it may not be immediate today, but it's also like letting one person make the leeway. It opens the door for everybody else. But it's definitely, you know, having some of your personal bias in there as a black person and, and they in the black experience, um, whether indirect or indir indirect or directly, but at least putting people on putting people on watch, like <laughs> I guess roughing them up when they come in, like on intake. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely necessary. And um, you kind of already touched on this, but my next question is, um, what can planners develop or add to their equity toolkit to implement and create policies and projects that are relevant and appropriate for communities that they're working with? I think the first thing is... Uh understanding what equity really means I think <laughs> the definition of it has become kind of watered down or kind of muddied as far as equity and diversion and inclusion um so truly understanding what equ equity is and then what equity looks like in my community is going to look like it's going to look different in your community equity here there's an over overall definition of it but I think from a planner's perspective, you have to look at equity and policy. You have to look at that. It may be black and white to us. Like this is an equitable, but you have to now make that understanding to a community that a may or may not truly understand equity, but also B thousand percent doesn't trust what we do good or bad. Um, so having, having that first thought of, okay, what is equity? Am I going in there lecturing or am I going there listening? Um, it sounds silly and it sounds cliche, but like listening and comprehending. I think a lot of times we go into communities to talk about X, Y, and Z plan, X, Y, and Z policy. And if you ask what they took away from it is a lot of people was complaining, but they didn't like remember that one person that said, this is the why I didn't want it because of X, Y, and Z factor. They just remembered the complaints. So it's 
it's, it's being it's being cognizant of not every single thing that a citizen says is a complaint. Some of it is genuine. Is like, okay, what they're saying makes sense. It may not make planning sense, but it makes like lived experience sense. <laughs> um, and I would say sometimes you have to be willing to take the brunt. You know what I'm saying? You have to be willing to take that, that lick from either a community or from upper management as far as was ethical and was not. I think we focus so much on equity that we like totally didn't really focus on ethics. Like if it's not ethical, then it's probably not equitable and vice versa. And that that's the easiest way to determine the two. You know, sometimes that's going to require something after five and then sometimes it's not. Um, but it's it's compassion and people get compassion confused with like <laughs> being a walkover, like being letting people walk over you. It's just not buying everybody's situation, but also understanding that if I wasn't on the other side of the of the counter, then I wouldn't know either. Like I wouldn't even come up here with these questions. But since I'm on the other side, I know the questions to ask. I know how to navigate it. Um, it's going in. Like I think the the most realistic thing anybody's ever told me is you know always talk, explaining planning is like if you're talking to like a fourth grader, even if you know they're they're much older, they're same age, whatever. It's is going into it with the, the sense of whatever you're doing, being intentional behind it, no matter how uncomfortable it's going to be, no matter how, how bad it is, you, you know, you, you have to, you have to go into it um, with the mentality of, I'm not just going to check it and say, okay, we did it. We asked the questions that they typed out and then we left. Um, it's definitely got to be ethics, ethical and equitable. Yeah, that's definitely very important. Um, and this kind of goes into my next question as well. Um, have you had any issues with um, navigating contentious conversations as like a person of color um, speaking with, you know, people like coming from a different perspective and a different lens? Um, do you feel like in your job, when you talk you're speaking for like the black community or like how does that how do you feel about that uh I have um at first I kind of like backed away from it because I'm passive I'm laid back I don't like confrontation but the more you the more I've grown and the more I've listened and watched and observed it's it's better to be disliked for doing the right thing than to be liked for you know just being like the mouthpiece for something that you know isn't good or quality you know what I'm saying um and it it, sometimes it does feel like you're the mouthpiece for the black community but also my immediate thought is my own parents my own grandparents in the sense of if they were here and they were asking this question and this person was talking to them they would know left from right in this in this particular conversation so you it's it's a huge way to put on yourself and you know I don't necessarily recommend it but I think you got to take some of it with you in the sense of if I don't take the extra step to break it down, if I don't at least try to put it in front of them in a way that, okay, if they didn't get it, let's let's try to run through it again. It's not so like, well, I tried and they didn't, you know, take it. At some point, yeah, that is the case. Um, but to me, I'll take that reprimand and I'll take, you know, whatever, getting in trouble. If I had, I went out of my way, whether that was going before, after work, during work, to somebody that I saw at City Hall and they asked a question and I felt like it wasn't 
thoroughly answered and I felt like they really didn't understand what they was what was the information that was being given but they just like left because they didn't want to continue to be there and feel like belittled um those contentious conversations are they're what they are and I think if you don't speak up for them who will in this you know in the in that lens of it could be an honest honest you know just not knowing any information and they pretty much got pushed to the side because they're not a big time developer. They didn't come in there like flexing a you know a huge development, a ton of money. Um, and yeah, you 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 kind of do. You got to speak for the whole black community in the sense of even the ones that think they know it all. You know, if you don't, who will? And if if they don't, you know, if they don't want to be spoken for, they they'll let you know. They'll say it. You know what I'm saying? But. There's a lot more. There's a lot more of us out there that just genuinely don't get it and want to be spoken for and want to be, you know, in those conversations or at least aware of it than the others who just show up face front and of they cause a ruckus or they just say stuff and it's very, you know, it's very pompous and it's not. It's not the status. It's not what everybody else is thinking. Um, so. I guess yes, yes and no. Like you take that on your shoulders, but it's also, I think, are you taking it and taking it because you want to or are you taking it because you feel like <laughs> you have to? Right, yeah. I feel like in any um, industry or line of work, um, as, a, as a Black American, I feel like even in, some classes, maybe I'm the only one in there or whatever. Sometimes you do feel like your voice and your answers are speaking for other people. And um, I, I, I don't, I always, I don't always like feel comfortable with that. Cause I know that the black community is not a monolith. Sure. We're so diverse in our thought and, you know, how we feel about things. But at the same time, like you said, if, I don't speak up about something no one else is going to. So sometimes yeah. you take on that for um, sure burden, not necessarily a burden, but like that responsibility. And that's it's a heavy, it's a heavy weight to carry for sure. It, because you, it's kind of like you didn't really ask for it, but you're in a position now to where you have to say something. Um, and like you said, every black person isn't a monolith by no means, even in planning, you know what I'm saying? we all think differently. We're all in different arenas and we don't always agree, which is okay because we all come at, come at it from a different perspective, different walks of life, even different regions. But um, I guess for me, I look at it as I was in a program and there weren't a lot of people that looked like me. There were no teachers that looked like me. And I had like four classmates um, in my time in my graduate program. And some of the questions that we talked about, some of the things that we talked about, it was like, okay, <laughs> these are like these are like made up theories for people that have never lived in neighborhoods that I've lived in or experienced what I've experienced so like you mentioned sometimes it is uncomfortable at the beginning because it's like okay she may not feel that way but I can definitely say that that experience you just described is not something either one of us can relate and it's not that 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 in itself when you hear other people like non-black people is a monolith of saying like everybody had this single parent ghetto experience when that is not the case whatsoever so yeah you know it's a blessing and a curse (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
All right. Uh, next question. Um, I know you're still in your early career, but have you seen any changes in planning in the planning world um, in your career so far? And has anything um, positive or negative uh, surprised you about this line of work? Uh, I have seen some changes. They're slow changes, but I've seen more changes in, I guess, what you call the grassroots. I've seen more people organize. I've seen more people collectively get together to, you know, figure out how to come at it, come at the policies, come at, if you can't change them, rewrite them. You know what I'm saying? I've seen I've seen some I've seen some phenomenal things in that arena from um, black planners, Hispanic planners, uh, indigenous. You know what I'm saying? I, I've seen people collectively congregate over shared ideas and values of okay, this isn't right. This is how it's written. How do we go from getting it, changing it, basically? Um, so I've seen some people really in the underbelly, and that's it's encouraging, it's motivating, it's inspiring. Uh, even when APA doesn't really come through the way that you feel like they should. Um, I think I'm, I won't say radical, but maybe just like hard-headed in the sense of organization or not, like it's not just, it's not just made of white, made up of white professionals anymore. Uh, in my opinion, in the next four years or so, it's going to be predominantly black, black and brown and indigenous that are in your planning offices, in your director positions. And that organizational idea of why APA can't say certain things is going to have to change. Like you're not going to be able to go by the same ethics from its inception to right now. Um, so I've definitely seen some positive things. I've definitely seen a lot of people figure it out without a lot of direction, whether it's from, whether that's from not wanting to change or whether that's just from leadership. Um, as far as the negatives, I think a lot of people learned bits and pieces about what planning is and what we kind of do. And that was just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. So it's in a way given like this false sense of change the world ism. <laughs> um, and that's, that can be uh, irritating in some aspects in the sense of, uh, you know, building up, building 20 some homes is not going to like solve the issues that so many people have been like studying and researching and beating the pavement for as far as affordable housing goes, you know, like that's that aspect uh, or that turn of 2020 was a little disheartening in the sense of why, like, why do you need planners when you have architects and everybody's a developer and a, you know, a house flipper. There are some phenomenal ones out there that are like actually like flipping for the greater good, but so many people came out of that, 2020 as realtors and investors and it's just like it made it seem like what we did was more watered down um so I think that was definitely one of the biggest drawbacks and then also from a bigger standpoint of a lot of people said a lot of stuff and not a lot of if any really like stood on it and came through you still have organizations that are like trying it behind closed doors they're trying to like press you you know forming microaggressions but you know in a time to where so much was up in the air. So a lot of people, you know, <laughs> vastly left their jobs. And I'm a big advocate for if it's if it's costing your mental, then leaves. You know what I'm saying? And not to put you in a financial strain, but um, there's no amount of money that can like reverse how microaggressions impact you. Um, but at the same time, it's I still see jobs. I still hear about organizations that are really like dancing on the fine line of harassment or 
you know, or else kind of thing. So that's that's disheartening to see because, you know, they I'm sure all of them released some type of statement in 2020. They painted their streets with Black Lives Matter, but they didn't do much else outside of that. So it's just kind of like, you know, collectively, we're not there yet. Um, and it's wild that we have to take on us as planners of color and all these different conglomerations across the, you know, the U.S. have to undo the work of like five white men that... <laughs> For whatever reason, they feel like, you know, they're like the Ten Commandments. So in that arena, I don't feel like we're, we've made a ton of progress. And I say we as like APA, not we as like black and brown planners, because we're doing, for the most part, the most of us are doing what we can with what we have. Um, and for all of us, to, for the most, mostly to be like contributing to APA or involved in APA, um, quite frankly, they're not doing enough that it's like, yeah, I'm ready to start paying dues kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I I totally agree. I could definitely talk about <laughs> for, for a while. Um, but on to my next question here. Um, has there been anything in your professional development that you never thought you would have to know as a planner? <laughs> uh, public speaking? Like... Uh, I pretty much ran from it all the graduate school uh, group projects. I just did like the, the work and never had to like do the actual presenting. And I know it seems like stupid to like, you obviously going to have to talk sometimes, but I know people that have gone their whole career and never went to like a public meeting. So I figured I would be one of those people. <laughs> um, but the, that was a skill that I learned quickly that I had to develop to find my own voice. So it turned into like me stepping out of my comfort zone personally, because I usually, you know, I sit back and observe. I don't say a whole lot. I'm really big on not putting in my two cents if it's not warranted. Um, but learning how to have a voice and use it and also translate that into, you know, interacting with people and talking to people, um, that was a skill that I didn't think was going to be as beneficial as it has been as far as developing it. And... Um, I, don't, I wouldn't even really call it a skill, but like genuinely being myself, I think so much of our profession is this, this crazy level of professionalism and what a planner looks like and what how they should act and how they should hold themselves. Um, I didn't realize at the time when I came out of school, even like my first year or so being a planner, quote unquote, I, you know, try to fit into this box of, okay, if I do everything that these other people are doing, I should be good. But I think after after like a like six months in it, you that is what starts to suck out your soul as far as okay, this it's not hidden, it's not it. Um so that skill of like just being unapologetically black is <laughs> unmatched. Like once I think once you tap into that as a black planner or a planner of color, it allows you to exist so differently, um, in a way that your know, blackness really is a skill as far as I used to be so nervous to go into community meetings, even just being like the PowerPoint person, not even being a person giving a presentation, just going there for like moral support and hoping that nobody called on me or needed anything. But I think the first time somebody asks you a question and they don't know that you're, you know, you're, you're working, they just see that you're black, they're black, and they just start having a genuine conversation and not disregarding your coworkers like they don't even exist. It's, that's when you kind of like, that's when you know, like, okay, 
it's kind of like a superpower. They don't even know that I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, but they're asking me all the questions and but not even questions about the medium. They're just talking to me because they feel comfortable. And I think that's, that's a skill that um, so much of our, our profession and even some programs have tried to like pull out of you as far as you have to like code switching. Yeah. Obviously we all know what's appropriate and what's not for certain conversations, yeah. but once you get past that hurdle of, okay, if I say this, you probably, you more likely went over somebody than trying to say things and remember, like, did I use this big word already or should I use another one? (laughs) That skill alone has been something that I never would have thought that like professional development would have played such a big role. Yeah, that's, that's, we're, we're kind of in the same boat with that. I, I'm, I'm someone who's like naturally quiet or was in the past. I'm trying to like get, be more outgoing. And, um, our program has a lot of group work and we do a lot of presentations and classes and stuff. So I do have experience now with like public speaking, standing and like presenting, um, in front of the class. So that's definitely helped me a lot too, developing my own voice and, um, in that way. Um, so my next question is, um, I know that you're into urban design as well. Um, are there any emerging or newly innovative technologies or applications that planners and land use professionals should keep an eye out for, um, or start to get familiar with? Man, as much as I don't like, I won't say I don't like it, but as much as I struggle in it sometimes, GIS, like, (laughs) Wow. If any, if nobody's like teaching you GIS or you haven't learned it, or if you don't know it, uh, YouTube University, or if you're still in school and you can slide it in before graduation, um, GIS is changing so quick. Um, I went to, we had like a, uh, like a presentation like two weeks ago and they were showing us how you can do like 3D modeling of like what, when people want want to develop you can like show it and what it looked like in character with every all the other developments and that was like mind-blowing to me nobody else in the media thought that but tba but like when people ask like what do you think how do you think it'll fit in this area so when you have this 3d model that you can literally show them like this isn't a rendering of what it may look like by character and by design and function is really dope um so i think having some basic knowledge of gis and being able to kind of keep up as it grows uh, and for me personally like not learning urban design by trait but picking it up towards the end of my graduate program really just like by obsessively research, researching and reading um sketch up that's something that i'm fortunate in my graduate program we took a class that really made us focus on the the graphic side of planning like being able to do better graphics to mix in with all of the words that we use and we learned SketchUp. Granted, it was in the summer, so it was like a week of figuring it out and drawing a model and being good at it. But it was, I think that's a phenomenal way to like show and visualize what a space is going to look like. I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual person by nature. Um, so I think us being able to show people that and being able to show really community and residents how it pans out. They may still hate it, but at least they saw it and they liked it in that moment. So I definitely think SketchUp, man, and I'm biased because I I use it and I pay for it. But anything in the Adobe package, um, I use a lot of uh, Photoshop and InDesign. So I think going outside of those traditional skills of 
what we like research, but like now being able to put it toward visualization because I'm sure you've been still being in school, like y'all are seeing more, you're doing more presentations that have more images and more you're Scott, you're, you're spending probably more time finding a, like an extremely dope image opposed to like the text that goes with it or the research or the content. Uh, so tap being more tapped into those visual aspects of going going out of your comfort zone of hopefully nobody's still just using PowerPoint to create PowerPoints when there's so many other dope options out there, but uh, definitely visual graphics. Yeah, that's so cool. Like I, I've been able to use JS through like various um, internships that I've done so far and I love it. It's like, to me, it feels <laughs> like I'm putting together a puzzle or something and it's really cool because you're able to tell a story better with like the data that you're using and yeah. you're able to put it together so it makes sense to people you know what I'm saying so For it's not sure. like data on a page it's like you're telling a story you're making it into like a graphic an image people can actually see okay this makes sense like I can actually like understand yeah they, you know so yeah. and I then like understanding that GIS is so much but so much more than like a map making tool like when you mentioned that I have colleagues and friends who are like yeah I use GIS for everything but maps I'm like wow maybe I'm the dweeb because I use it mostly for maps so <laughs> just being able to like at least have some knowledge of like GIS can do so much and storytelling through that with data and visuals is pretty unmatched in my opinion yeah for sure um my next question is, um, is there any figure in your life, whether it be at home or um, a mentor that has impacted your professional progression significantly? Uh, definitely say my mom. My mom has been in public sector. She hasn't, she's not in planning, but she's been in the public sector arena uh, for the past 17 years. And she finds it funny when I say like I would have never worked for the local government and here I am on like my fourth or fifth city. But just like that constant, I learned about local government at an early age because my mom worked in it. So it was kind of like forced on me uh, as far as local elections and just being involved at a local level rather than like at the big time, you know, big boys level. Um, man, who else? <laughs> I can't even think of the top of my head. I literally just went blank as far as. I'm going to just do like all of the, the black and brown planners that I've interacted with and like in the time of the pandemic to now has been an inspiration in itself, just seeing what they do. And it's like motivated me to not necessarily go harder and hustle harder, but find a better way to be a better impact and better be more involved in my community outside of like being a planner, like going to a meeting and just being, being useful. And they don't even know that like, I drew the map or whatever. Um, so there's so many people that, you know, that I've met in this arena um, kind of as a grace, you know, as a good thing out of the pandemic, being able to collaborate with these people and kind of watch them from afar. Um, so any any black or brown planner, architect, landscape architect uh, that I follow has been a huge huge piece of the puzzle and kind of like getting me here and getting me in the the mentality of putting passion before everything else awesome thanks um my next question is um 
how much influence has um, your race being an African-American um, have on your journey so far as a planner? Um, what are some ways this far that you've used um, your race or uh, position to influence change as an urban planner in your community? That's a dope question. Uh, so to answer the first part of it, I think it's been a like a tremendous impact, even being in communities that have been primarily Black as well, like leadership, um, being in this age bracket and being a female and being so, I guess, in the now, in the know, just being connected to all these different people, it's been extremely impactful as far as stepping to the table and feeling like you can, you can run with the best of them, 20 years on you, 30 years on you, X amount of degrees and all the other acronyms, like it, it puts you in a space of being like solidified, quite honestly. Um, and then as far as like being black and being in like, like that impactfulness of it, it's done things that I didn't even realize at the time, as far as I always go into these, when people ask me to say things about planning. I never like go into them like, yes, go to planning school. I mean, it's just whatever, if you want to or whatever, but it's really about being a, like a difference maker outside of being an athlete or being an artist, which both of those are obviously phenomenal paths to go. But unfortunately, every it doesn't choose everybody to go the long, you know, go the long road. Um, but showing there's another way to use your skill, use your color, and use your, you know, your culture to make a lane for yourself and create this impact. Now being a Black planner, a Black female planner, um, knowing how to navigate those policies, it it makes people double think or double take when they, when they ask you a question or when you bring up something to them as far as, okay, well, we want you to come to X, Y, and Z meeting that has to do with, you know, the overall development of this community for this area. And that's a conversation that possibly I probably wouldn't have got invited to just off of, you know, seeing my name on something on LinkedIn or whatever. Right. That I think as much as we joke about it, like not wanting to be, you know, like the token, but also being the token and being there and being like yeah. saying all the things that they didn't think you were going to say, like saying all the, all the black, all the black things. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's very much going on your own agenda when you do get on the, get into those arenas. So I definitely think it's had a huge impact um, for the simple fact of whether they're trying to check a box, whether they're trying to make themselves feel good or whatever the case may be. Right. When the doors open for me, I immediately in my mind, I already know I'm bringing like 10, 15 people with me. So it's, 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 it's gonna, for me, it's always finding a way to finesse the system in the sense of <laughs> if they didn't want me here to check a box, uh, then they, you know what I'm saying? They would have picked somebody else, right. to, you know, just say the, the status quo thing. So I definitely think to where so much of it is about when people talk about why does it have to be about race? You can look around, probably look around your classroom and just say like, yeah, this is why, like this me being a black female, me being a black planner, um, it speaks volumes in its own. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that's so good. That's like so good. I love that. Um, I was I was actually gonna uh, ask you a follow up question about like your opinion on like tokenism and whether <laughs> it's a good or bad thing. In my opinion you know, you got to use that to your advantage. For sure. You know, thing. Those are opportunities, whether they actually see you for who you are and your abilities, or you're just like a check on the box. Um, 
you know, it allows you to get your foot in the door somewhere or put you in a position where you may not have been able to before. So For sure. And yeah. I definitely think, you know, that now that con- that falls back onto you, like the balls in your court and your character as a black planner or a black person that you feel like they brought you in for tokenism. Cool. But are you going to get in there and now fall victim to who they want you to be? Or are you going to be yourself, stand firm on it? And then you'll be able to say like, okay, yeah, they didn't really want somebody in here that was going to be like outspoken and right, right. actually be black. They just wanted somebody in here to be black and just like fall in the shadows. So mm-hmm. I definitely think when somebody takes the opportunity and thinks that they're getting that kind of black person, you take it and you run with it and, you know, you get out of it everything that you can and, you know, either you leave or you stay and you bring other people along because to me, in the long run, what you bring to a company or what you bring to a city or what you bring to an organization as a black planner, they're not going to get it from everybody else. You're not going to get it from your white counterpart. You're not going to even get it from even just between you and I, two totally different black experiences but if I'm the only black person and I don't like it, and you try to hire another black person, it's probably not, they're probably not gonna like it either. Right. Just <laughs> That's just how we operate. So it's it's using that that arena to, you know, really solidify yourself. A company's gonna, you know, they're gonna do what they gotta do to get out of what you can. And yeah, they they pay you, but if they're not putting you in genuine positions to win, I think you're doing yourself a, you're doing yourself a solid by taking getting all the resources you can from them whether that's going to classes going to training going to conferences let them run it up for the fact of that's why they brought you here you know so they can like kind of tote you around of yeah we have a black planner and they have x y and z certification or whatever so yeah Yeah. that's so good yeah thank you now um this has been a wonderful conversation we're kind of coming to an end definitely Um, my last uh question for you Um, what advice would you give yourself or um, any um, enterprising students seeking to be successful as a planner in this career? Uh, (laughs) My younger self. I think the biggest thing that I hated when people told me was you can't save the world and you can't, but um, you can for sure put up a fight to, you know, at least change it at the local level or the state level um but passion over everything um the passion is gonna drive you and nothing else when all of the policies and everything like that none of it makes sense and you're just like forget all of it you know for me if I could give anything to my younger self and then to upcoming students of color and urban planning is passion find a passion or you know what I'm saying craft a passion and let that guide you you know through urban planning and through you know these communities it'll it'll become less like work and it'll become more like you know every day I know it sounds cliche if you you know you love what you do you won't work in it whatever 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 <laughs> <laughs> but you still got to pay bills and stuff realistically yeah but, yeah um, I'm a big believer in the passion lays a foundation for you to be in a financial situation so where you don't have to worry about it as much when you're doing things from the heart. So if anything, and I know finding that lane is hard in itself, um, but letting that passion organically take you where you need to go, you'll be straight. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Desiree. For sure. Thank you. Wonderful conversation. Um, I know our listeners will learn a lot from you. I know I did. Um, where can they stay connected with you online? Um, um, yeah. 
um, Instagram at T-H-E-D-E-E underscore P. Uh, I'm one of the few people that don't have a separate Instagram for planning stuff in real life because no, it's too many passwords. But also I wanted it to be genuine and organic mm-hmm. uh, on Twitter at D-R-B-T-S planning and uh, on my website at D-R-B-T-S urbanplanning.com. I guess LinkedIn, if people like do that, I'm not as active on there as I should be, but it's uh, Desiree Powell on LinkedIn or something like that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Desiree. Of course. Thank you. So that's it for SubGW. Thanks for listening and join us next episode as we continue to bring insight to the Black Planner Perspective.